The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Holy, holy, holy God, we come and talk to you because you are God alone. We are not talking to, as the old saint said, the God of the philosophers and the God of the wise. We come into the presence of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only God there is. The God of the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The God of the apostles, God of Paul, most importantly, the God who reigns over all of this earth, and particularly His church. The God who has made Himself known by taking on flesh. Father, Son, and Spirit, we come and we, we ask You, as creatures humble. We ask You to stoop and to deal with us today. You are the transcendent one who reigns over all of the ages and we ask You to stoop down and become imminent. To be present here now in this room. To speak to us through Your text by the power of Your Spirit. Lord, those of us here, many of us know You. Many of us have been drawn into relationship with You. We need to hear a fresh word from You, our Father. Some here, though, Lord, don't know You, and I pray, awaken them and draw them. By Your Spirit, lift up Jesus and make Him appear as sweet as He is, as precious as He is. The only hope for men and women everywhere. And Father, I pray that as we deal with this passage this morning, it is a lengthy passage, would You help us to work through it and find the message that You have for us? And would You cause it to rest in us? Would You produce change in us to make us a people pleasing to You? I ask for Your Spirit's help, Lord, on us to help us to to listen as it's warm in here. To help me to speak clearly as I am fallen and prone to confusion. So Spirit, would You come and would You help us? Would You illumine the text and would You open our minds and our hearts so we would understand it and actually hear from God and be different? Produce change in us, Lord, for the glory of Christ, for the good of Your church. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray this. Amen. Can we get the lights fixed, please?
Okay. This morning we turn our attention to Deuteronomy chapter 24. We've been working through this fifth book of Moses. And as we've seen in the last several chapters of Deuteronomy, some sections have a clear main topic. And other sections seem not so much. They're varied in their material. And as we come to the middle of chapter 24 and we see the, the heading miscellaneous laws, you might guess that we are in one of those more varied sections. Last week was otherwise. Verses 1 to 4 address the subject of marriage and divorce. Focused our attention on that and particularly on the family. And as we begin in verse 5, the text kind of continues on with this theme, with this idea of, of marriage and family. And then it launches into a whole bunch of other subjects. And and what we're going to find, though, I think, is as, as we look at this, there's a, a collection of verses over here and some subjects over here and some commands over here. But there is, again, kind of a common theme. They all touch on something. And, and by God's grace, we'll, we'll see that and it'll, it'll come out and it will affect us and, and be changed. And we can come at that a little bit by thinking, what is God doing in all of these statutes and commandments and laws and stipulations. What's he doing? What he's doing is he's trying to press into his people his moral law, the Ten Commandments. We saw the Ten Commandments back in chapter 5 of the book of Deuteronomy. And, and since that point on, what he's doing is unpacking those very simple statements and showing how they land in all kinds of different areas in life. He's using the situation that they're in, you know, ancient Israel, way back, showing how it lands there, and, and they would look at that, and the hope is that we would look at that and understand this is something about how God's law applies to our life today, what it looks like lived out. So what he's doing with his law is trying to press into us, his people, trying to press into us his nature, his values, his agenda, his perspective. Which means, if you're new here this morning, there's something I need to make very clear. What we are not looking at is how we become the people of God. This is not about, here's some things that you do, and if you do them, then God will accept you and make you one of His own. It's, in fact, quite the other way around. What this is, is God speaking to a people that he physically has already claimed as his own. He physically brought them out of slavery in the real country of Egypt, took, him, took them to himself, made them his people, and now after that is giving them this law, explaining now, as my people, here's what I expect. That's paralleling what he has done when he saves a people, spiritually. He spiritually brings them out of slavery, spiritually makes them his own, and then says, as my people, here's what I expect. So it's not, how do we become his people, but rather, because we already are his people, here's how he wants us to walk through life. And that's very important to understand as we look at this. So we're going to see him give some commands to keep them in the right order. He's talking about law, trying to press them into those who are his people. To lead us to walk in a way that pleases Him. It's worthy of the calling He has given to us. So with that, let me read the passage. As I said, it's a long one. Chapter 24, verse 5, all the way through 25, verse 4. I'm going to read the passage and then I'll pass back through and, and there will be a number of things I'll have to touch upon and I'll just be touching on them as I skip through them. 
before making a couple of comparatively shorter observations at the end. So let me read Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 5. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Take care, in the case of leprous disease, to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it lest he cry against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. If there is a dispute between men and they come into court, and the judge decides between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten... The judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given to him, but not more. Lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. This is the word of the Lord. Obviously a whole bunch of different stuff addressed there. We can divide the text so it kind of gives some conceptual shape to it. You can divide it on the basis of several different social classes or, or units of people that are addressed here. 
God is speaking to his people as a whole, and he's telling them how they are to deal with different groups of people. First this one, and then this one, and this one. And 5 to 7, verses 5 to 7, deal with that first unit, the family. A newly married man, what is he to do? You're supposed to let him be at home. To be glad with his wife, or really we could translate it, to make glad with his wife, to make her happy. What is this? It's a honeymoon. He's saying, give space. Let a man stay home and and experience with his wife a year of, of rest from military duty, from public service. Then you can press in and make public demands on him. The public life can can take things from him, but not at first. He wants to cement a marriage and, and probably is in, is implying giving them a couple of shots at creating an heir. It's establishing a family, protecting it, which is seen in the next couple of verses as well. When you make a pledge, you can't take a mill or a millstone. Now recall. Lending in this society was was not about high finance. People did not lend to borrow to start a business or to borrow to build a home. Borrowers borrowed to eat. They were poor. And a pledge would have been collateral. And he says, you can lend money and you can have a a pledge. You can have some collateral on that. But you can't take this family's mill. Every family would have a little mill they would use daily to grind up their, their flour to make bread. How are they going to eat? That would be a good motivation to get them to pay the loan back, for sure. But that would be cruel. Don't do it. Leave the mill in their possession. To take that, it would be like taking life from them itself, just like kidnapping is. Taking life out of the family. Kidnapping back then was was primarily done, as you can kind of get from the verses, for some financial reasons. You would take this person and not return him for a ransom. You'd take him to work your land or to sell him as a slave. There's financial gain in kidnapping, and it destroys the family, and God is strongly against it. He attaches the death penalty to kidnapping. It's so destructive. It's working to preserve family. In 8 and 9, then, provide a bridge into the whole rest of the chapter. We're going to see some of those themes that are developed there in 5, 6, and 7 kind of fleshed out in the rest of the chapter, but 8 and 9 are the bridge. And it might seem odd to have leprosy be a bridge. How does that connect here? And it's not entirely clear. Perhaps it's because in in the book of Leviticus, when leprosy is dealt with at length, it follows right on some laws about childbirth. So you've got kind of a family and children idea there in Leviticus. Maybe that's why Moses brings it up here. But for whatever reason, if you look closely at 8 and 9, you notice that it's not really about leprosy. It's about obedience. The repeated command is be careful to do what I say. Specifically, be careful to do what I say through my spokesman. The Levitical priests. I tell them, they tell you, to obey them is to obey me, says the Lord. Don't be like Miriam. Remember Miriam coming out of Egypt. Miriam refused to have Moses be the one who spoke for God. And God struck her for that. Listen and obey. I have some commands here that I'm giving through my servant Moses in this case. And they are requirements. Listen and obey as he then moves on to these other groups. First, the poor and needy, verses 10 to 15. 
Still with the, the loan and collateral idea again, the lender is prohibited from barging into the poor man's house. Picture this. Barge into somebody's house. Everything's opened up to you and you select your own collateral. The opposite of that is to keep him outside and say, no, his door is, is the line here. It's private. And he'll bring out his own collateral. Now, if you're a lender, you want to go in there and get the most valuable thing you can find. Again, you want leverage to make this guy repay this loan. And God says, no, what's more important to me is, is privacy and some dignity. He maintains his own home. He'll bring it out to you. And incidentally, you can't keep his cloak. Because the poorest of the poor, all he would have is the clothes on them. And they need that to sleep. Give it back to him. You see this theme here of, yes, I realize that if your primary concern is to get your loan repaid, the best leverage you have would be his cloak or the family's mill or the most valuable thing in the home. But that's not the primary goal. The primary goal is meeting this poor man's need. And let him choose the collateral and give it back to him if he needs it. And in the area of of work, pay him. Pay him what's due on the day it's due. Poor laborers live hand to mouth. They need the wage that day to feed their family the next day. Give it to him. It's what's due. These are, are all very specific situations that all are touching on potential exploitation. They're all areas of, of power struggle. The guy with the money can use this other guy, can, can, can twist him, can maneuver him. And what the Lord is doing here is he's taking sides repeatedly with the poor man. It's as if there are three guys, the poor man, the wealthy man, and the Lord. And the Lord is, is clarifying, here's what I will find when the case comes to me. Here's what I will find acceptable. Notice the end of verse 12 and the end of verse 15. Here's what I will find acceptable, what I will find to be righteous in my eyes. Or the end of verse 15, here's what I will find to be sin in my eyes. How you're treating this guy. You act, it's as if the Lord says, you act in such a way that the poor man says, Bless you. And I'll approve that. But if you act in such a way that the poor man cries out to me, Help! God, help me from this guy. Then we have a problem. It's repeatedly taking the poor man's side. There is righteousness here before the Lord, and there is guilt before the Lord. He's making that clear. He's concerned about this. And everybody will pay for their own sin, then personally. Verse 16 Not one member of the family for another, or vice versa. You do the crime, you do the time, he's saying, essentially. There are other passages in the Bible that talk about effects of sin carrying down through generations. That's true. Sin does affect generations. But God's saying, I will only deliberately require a punishment against the offender, if he's guilty. 17 to 22 then moves on to the next group, the socially vulnerable. The widow orphan sojourner. We talked about this group before. This is a group of people who, they, they may not be financially impoverished, but they don't own land, which makes them vulnerable. They don't have an advocate. They don't have this, this place to be. They're kind of floating in society. And so God says, 
Don't pervert justice due to this group. Don't pervert the justice due to these who are socially vulnerable. In particular, they don't have access to the land, and so when I bless the people, I often bless in the land. They don't have access to that. Give them access to it. And he drives that home by repetition. You harvest your grain, you forget some in the field, leave it for the widow, orphan, sojourner. Olives left on the tree, leave them for the widow, orphan, sojourner. Grapes on the vine, leave them for the widow, orphan, sojourner. It's almost as if he's encouraging kind of a, of a careless, haphazard harvesting. Yes, it's yours. Harvest it and leave some behind for them. I gave it to you. And through you, I want to give some to them, too. I I care about them. Have a mind towards them. Then another group, convicted criminals, 25 verses 1 to 3. And and the, the verse establishes that the man in question is, in fact, guilty. Whatever it is, you establish that he's guilty and you're not allowed to acquit the guilty or condemn the innocent. There's justice, there's righteousness in the court. And whatever the punishment is, in this case he's talking about lashes, whatever the punishment is, exact that. However, verse 3, notice how this convicted criminal who is going to be punished by the court is still called your brother. He's deliberately pointing out there's an affinity here between you. You cannot dehumanize him. You cannot turn him in your mind into something that that is less than your brother, less than human. In fact, that's why he limits the punishment, that he would not be degraded or humiliated. He's still one of you, a person. Guilty, yes, still one of you, a person. Be compassionate towards him. Don't degrade him. And, And in fact, God's compassion reaches so far that he mentions an ox. Even the the animals in the land. Now, don't deprive him of what he needs. Take the muzzle off and let him eat. Yes, I realize that you could increase the bottom line just a little bit more if you can keep him from snacking as he's walking around and crunching out the grain. Why? Let him eat. Open your hand and be liberal to this animal who's hungry and in need. And that's kind of the theme. Open your hand and be liberal with this one among you who is in need. Whether it's a a convict who needs to have his dignity preserved, or, or a widow orphan sojourner who needs access to the blessing of the land, or a poor man who needs his wages and his cloak. Open your hand. Be gracious and liberal, or the word I'm going to use is compassionate with those who are in need. That's the passage. Kind of all over the place with lots of different sections. But I think that the theme that runs through all of them is this open. Approach these ones in need with a compassionate attitude. So let me sum up what what I think this passage is getting at and what I'm going to unpack here this morning. Let me sum it up in this sentence, my main point for this morning. And I'm going to mention Christ here, and we'll we'll come to Him eventually, but 
Start with Christ. Christ's cross softens us and secures us so that we can live lives of righteous compassion. Christ's cross softens us and secures us so that we can live lives of righteous compassion. The end part there, that's the requirement. God puts it out there for us in his law, and we find it difficult, though, to conjure that up in us. And so his cross comes in and it helps us by changing us. So my two points, I'm going to break this apart in half, what God requires and how he helps us get there. So the first point, God expects his people to display righteous compassion towards those who are in need. God expects his people to display righteous compassion, and both those words are important. Righteous compassion towards those who are in need. Righteous or righteousness, that's rightness from God's perspective. Justness, goodness, holiness, purity, there's a whole collection of words here. You can kind of get the, the idea of what this word means. What is appropriate and acceptable in God's eyes, what is righteous. And compassion, a a feeling of, a a sharing of sorrow with a desire to do something about it. Righteous compassion. They join together. It's what he expects of us. It shows up in every section. If If you think about this, it is in every section. In the family, you can take collateral if you're a lender. I mean, there's, there's a justice here. There's a, a righteousness, but you can't take certain things that would cripple the family. There's a compassion. The government can make obligations on a, on a married man. There's a righteousness there, but he must do it compassionately. Give him some space first. Poor, the same thing. Compassion. Treat the poor man with dignity by not invading his home or handicap him by taking his cloak. But you can still take collateral. Care for the widow, orphan, and sojourner, giving them justice, giving them access to the land, even the criminal as he's being punished. Don't degrade him. Don't humiliate him. He's guilty. Righteousness demands that he be punished for his guilt, but do so in a way that still preserves his dignity. Don't turn him into a a piece of garbage or something like that. Each category is a group of people who in some way or another display a vulnerability, who are at the mercy of others. The mercy of those who have money, or the mercy of the court, the mercy of the state. And God commands righteous compassion towards them. Because that's who He is. Righteous and compassionate. All of God's commands flow directly out of His person. He Himself is righteousness. He doesn't hold to some separate standard. That's what He is. He is good. He is always right. He is sinless and holy in in all that He does. He is the definition of righteousness. He sets the standard. He made our world to work this way displays righteous 
compassion because he is a compassionate God with a big heart, generous with open hands. He cares about the downcast and the hurting and the troubled. He says it repeatedly. Which goes a long way towards explaining why he wants us, his people, to be like that too. Righteous and compassionate. Both. Together. He wants us to be what he made us to be. Image bearers. A people who carry into this world a reflection of who he is. Righteous and compassionate. Brothers and sisters, God cares about this. He cares about this. He's strongly concerned that we listen to him when he commands it. I doubt that anybody here disagrees. Not most, at least. Most people here, I think you already believe that God is compassionate and that God wants his people to be. And I think you already believe that God is righteous and he wants his people to be. So let's work on that a little bit and see, are we? What would that look like? Well, we could think about some of the specific situations here. Families, those in economic need. How about those on the fringe, widow, orphan? Let's take Sojourner as an example. How do you feel when you bump into a dark-skinned person who is speaking only Spanish while he and his crew take care of the lawn or she cleans your hotel room? Did your mind just jump to illegal immigration? Because I didn't say anything about illegal immigration. But did your mind jump there? When I mentioned a Spanish-speaking housekeeper, did your mind jump to issues of illegal immigration? Or did your mind jump to sojourner? With kids at home, probably. Working manual labor at minimum wage. Where'd your mind go? Illegal immigration is an issue. I got that. It's an issue that our nation has to address, has to resolve. States will do it. There's a lot of debate about that in the news, obviously. But get this. There's no debate about it for us as Christians. Our job as the church, is not to resolve illegal immigration. You bump into that Spanish-speaking housekeeper, you have no idea if she is an immigrant, or if she is legal or illegal, and it's not your job to find out. Unless you happen to be a police officer or an immigration agent or something. There is a debate out there, but it's not our debate. For us, the issue is clear. What does God expect of us? What does he require of us as we deal with this other? He requires that we interact with this person in such a way that that person would say to God on our behalf, bless you. 
That this man or this woman, in bringing me before the judge, would say, that man was a blessing to me. Even if guilty. I'm not saying illegal immigration is not illegal. But even the guilty person is to be dealt with in dignity. Is that not clear from 25, 1 through 3? So what's your attitude about? How do you conceive of the sojourner among us? You can move to other examples. Other vulnerable people. How do you react with the poor, the homeless? Even those within our own community. Do, do you recognize difference in class and status? How does that sit in your heart? Is there a pride, a separationness? We must take from this passage that God cares about vulnerable people. And He expects us to care about vulnerable people. I need to say it again because I, I know there are a dozen people in here right now frustrated with me about this. I get that illegal immigration is illegal. I get that. That's not the issue. He expects us to care about vulnerable people and to deal with them in dignity and compassion and righteousness. Not an option, but I think that's difficult for us. Probably for at least two reasons. Think about myself at least. It's difficult for me from a, a heart angle and a head angle. So I've got kind of two different categories here. It's difficult for me to deal with people, vulnerable people who have a need in relation to me. It's difficult for me to deal with them compassionately from the, the heart first. Partially because... I don't care. I think that's true. That we talk about caring, but we are more concerned. I, I won't indict you because I don't know for sure. I am more concerned about what I'm doing. This occurred to me. I, I'll, I'll still use the the. Uh, the lawn care crew, because this example sticks in my mind. I walked out of a class at seminary some years back talking about sojourners, God's heart for them, thinking about all those issues in a class, and I walked out and for the first time noticed the half a dozen Spanish-speaking men mowing the seminary's lawn. For the first time. I mean, I've been there for years. Probably did it every week. And I saw it for the first time. Not because I had ever been mean to them, but I just hadn't noticed. Realistically, what am I going to do with them? I mean, I'm not going to invite the whole crew over to my house. I don't live anywhere near there. What am I going to do? Well, what I did was I, I smiled and said hello as I walked by. Sometimes that's all that, that I'm talking about here. I'm not going to strike up 
a, a lasting, lifelong friendship with, with everybody I meet. But the thing is, I, I hadn't even noticed them because I wasn't paying attention. I'm really, I'm consumed in my own world. It's really hard to be compassionate for people you don't notice. The heart, my care, and I think your care, is fundamentally about me. And if I'm going to be, as God requires, compassionate in dealing with needy people, I'm going to have to start noticing needy people and caring about them. It's not in me. Not consistently in me, at least. But the other angle, I think, is the head. I am wary of being used. All kinds of needy people need things. And I'm wary. Partly because I don't want to be abused and partly because I'm worried that if I give this away, I won't have it anymore. I'll come out with loss in this. So I think that something's needed, at least for me, and I think that you share pieces of me. I think that something's needed. I need to have a heart that's softened and a head in which I realize I am secure. That whatever game is going on, if there is one, whatever loss I take, it, it's okay. And what God has done in Christ is soften us and secure us. Which leads me to the second point. So, righteous compassion is required of us. It's what he means to characterize his people. He commands it, and he also, in the text, points out how that can grow in us. So, here, here's the second point. Righteous compassion is motivated by Christ-centered memory and Christ-centered faith. Righteous compassion is motivated by Christ-centered memory and faith. Which is to say, Christ-centered looking in the rear-view mirror, back, memory, and Christ-centered looking through the windshield, forward, at what is promised, looking at that in faith. Both those things together. And they're in the text. Verse 9, remember Miriam. Looking back. What happened to her on the way out? Verse 18, Remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you. Verse 22 again, You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Three times explicitly, remember. Look back. And it's implied in a couple of other ways. It's a, some subtle ways where he uses some, some word devices like that use of, of brother. Poor and needy man is your brother. Remember what I have done. I have made you a people. He's using memory as a foundation in this passage for his commandment. You were poor and needy. You were sojourners in a foreign land, enslaved. And I redeemed you. Remember that? You recall? Which for today means what for us? Because we weren't slaves in Egypt. Never been to Egypt. But of course, the parallel, the physical slavery in Egypt, paralleling the spiritual slavery in sin. I have not been to Egypt, but I have been a slave to sin. 
And what He is doing constantly in His people's lives is, is trying to remind them of His redeeming work. And for us, His great redeeming work is the delivering of us out of slavery and sin. Breaking the bondage of sin that controlled our hearts. Men and women, I, I don't know if this is the first time you've ever heard this. For some, probably it is. But maybe God would use this time to open your hearts to understand that your greatest enemy is your sin. Your greatest enemy is your own self, your own soul locked in sin. From birth, we have hearts that are inclined against God. And the only way out of that bondage is for the Lord Himself to redeem you, to set you free, to liberate you. He has spiritually made a way for that to happen. That's what's going on at the cross in Jesus. There is a bondage of, of sin that at the cross, Jesus dies and breaks. How does it happen? In a nutshell, what he does is he takes upon himself the wrath due to you for your sin, takes it upon himself, dies to pay that penalty, and exchanges with you his righteousness. We're required to be righteous. He gives us his righteousness. So that God can look at us and say, you're clean. I have no wrath against you. There is no guilt in you. You're righteous. And the penalty is removed off of us, borne by Jesus on the cross. If you trust Him, He will redeem you. And for those of us here who have trusted Him, He has redeemed you. Remembering that, not like you remember a date on a calendar. If you're married, probably most of us can remember the date you got married. Most of us can remember our own birthdays. Birthdays of other people that we care about. You can remember dates on a calendar. But I'm not talking about that kind of remembering. When God's telling us to remember something, He's saying, go back and live in it for a moment. So marriage, it's different than, than just remembering the date you were married. It's meditating on your marriage. Maybe remembering the vows that you made. I imagine that a number of us who just went to Jeremy and Nicole's wedding had moments that reminded us of, oh, my own wedding, my own marriage. And it comes back to you a little bit. And it, it stirs something in you. softens you a little bit towards your spouse. You remember, oh, that's why I married you. <laughs> softens you a little bit, doesn't it? That sort of remembering is what God intends, but more powerful and heart-renovating that, because He takes His Spirit, and He takes that, that memory of the cross, He takes His Spirit and does something in our hearts with it. He, he changes us. Not just giving us a warm fuzzy for a moment, he changes us. He endears us to this one who saved us, 
who redeemed us. He shows us this God right here while you were enslaved, while you were poor and needy, while you were a sojourner, an outcast, vulnerable, He acted towards you in righteous compassion. He did not acquit the guilty. He dealt with it righteously. He made you innocent. By taking Christ's death in your place. What compassion! He is that kind of God. Remember that. God the Spirit will take that and put it in you and change you. It softens you. So you don't think like that man in Matthew 18. You know that story of Matthew 18? The guy who owes a billion dollars to his employer and can't pay it back. And the employer says, I forgive it. I remove the debt. And then he walked out on the street and bumped a new guy, owed him a dollar fifty, and he threw him in jail for it. And Jesus says, What is that? It's a guy who doesn't understand or doesn't remember that he was just redeemed from an incredible debt. We don't want to be a people like that. May, may God help you to remember your redemption. You were a slave and He brought you out. And as you remember that, it softens you. But that's not, that's not all of it. That's, that's just the rearview mirror looking back. There is a forward looking as well, piled on top. Hinted at a couple of places. Verse 13. He may sleep in his cloak and bless you. That'll be righteousness. That will be righteousness. He's, he's inviting him to think about there's a time when God will evaluate you for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. As Paul says. Think about what's coming that's future oriented. It's explicit in verse 19. You leave a sheaf in the field that the Lord your God may bless you. In all the work of your hands. That's a future blessing. Leave the sheep there for the widow, orphan, sojourner, so that he will tomorrow bless you. That's not backwards, that's forwards. A promise about what will come. We've seen this again and again in this book, that there are paths here. There's a path of walking after God's ways upon which we experience, not earn, experiences blessing and there is a path walking contrary to God's ways that he does not bless walk this path and I will in the future I will bless you that's a promise you can't really qualify it quantify it when how to what degree he doesn't say I will bless you with X number of dollars on such and such a date. doesn't say. He just says, I'll bless you. In other words, I'll cover it. You're secure. The temptation is, I want to harvest all of that. I forgot a sheaf. Well, I better go get that. That's another $200. Leave it. You don't need the $200. Or if you do, I'll cover it. Maybe I'll give you 200, maybe I'll give you 400, maybe I'll help you deal with 200 less. One way or another, I will bless you. He's telling you he has the future in his hand, you are secure. Which really brings it down to, do you trust him or not? 
do you? I think the reasons that I am disinclined towards compassion towards people. I'm hardened towards them. As I look at the cross, I'm softened. And I'm worried about being worked. And as I look at the cross, I realize, hey, along with Christ, will he not also give me everything I need? Yes, I'm secure. So whether or not this guy gets away with something, God is judge. He'll take care of it. Whether he gets away with something at my expense, God will take care of me. Whether or not he's not getting away with anything at all, but I'm just going to lack as I give, God will take care of me. I'm secure. The cross establishes my security. We set our minds on what God has done for us in Christ. He softens us. And secures us. Causes us to realize our security. Which sets us free to deal with people like Him. Like He does. Compassionately. Righteously. As we move towards communion, I want to to give some time here to just sit. Just a couple of minutes, won't be very long. But just to sit and to think. Where am I in this? Two things. Ask the Lord to speak to you about where you struggle with compassion, to point it out. Here's here's my issue right here. Help him point that out. And then ask him, how does the cross soften or secure me to address my problem here? Think on that a little bit. And after a minute here, I'll pray and we'll move towards communion. Just be a minute or two. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.